last week we started a series uh, looking at the life of Paul. Uh, and specifically what I want to do with this series is to try to look at the background behind Paul's letters um, in the context of where they emerge in the story of his life. Uh, the thing with these letters that Paul wrote is that he didn't just sit down one day and say, well, I just feel like writing a letter to the Corinthians. Um, it, it, there was a reason behind them. They, they had a context. And in fact, as I said, I said last week, if there wasn't something going wrong in these churches, then he wouldn't have he wouldn't have taken the time to write to them, especially when you consider how long and how expensive the writing process was. Paul was a busy man, and so he wouldn't have had the time to write to them if there wasn't the necessity to do so. And so we need to understand them within their context, which is the story of Paul's life uh, and the story of the churches and, and how he was relating to them, where, where they were uh, in their journey. And so to take all of this together um, sort of gives us a better sense of, of what these letters are about. Uh, you know, when we read the Bible, we read Paul's letters, we read them automatically as 21st century documents or 21st century um, ideas because that's where we are. We, we just assume that they were written for us, that they automatically speak to us. And of course, there's an element of truth to this. We talk about the word of God being eternal and being life-giving in all times and all places. And, and that's true. I mean, the Bible still speaks to us uh, and that, that will never change. But Paul wasn't writing to us. He didn't know who we were. As far as Paul was concerned, Jesus was coming back tomorrow. He wasn't thinking 2,000 years into the future. He was thinking about his immediate situation right now. And again, you know, an example like Corinthians and even Galatians that we're going to look at today, Paul was writing in a way that trying to save those churches in the immediate you know, in his mind, if he didn't write these letters and deal with these issues straight away, there may not be a church in a couple of months. And so he was writing with a real sense of urgency, um, not, not just for the immediate survival of the church, but in the mindset that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, that he needs to deal with this situation so that when Jesus does come back tomorrow, there'll still be a church in Galatia or a church in Corinth. So this is kind of his immediate framework in the writing of this, which is why there's quite often so much urgency about the way that he's dealing with these situations. So that's what I want to look at. I want to focus on these letters as first century documents and specifically within the life of Paul himself. And so to do that, we're going to tell his story. And so what we got to last week was Paul, um, we looked at his background and we finished with this uh, where Paul was about to begin his first missionary journey. And this is where the story of Paul really picks up in Acts. And it, it takes us time to sort of work through the details of where he goes and, and what it is that he does. So we'll pick up our story this week at the beginning then or at the starting point of this first missionary journey. Now, before we get to the story itself, we just want to set some background context to um, to where we find ourselves, just within the broader context of where um, Judaism was and and why well why there was an issue in Galatians in the first place. So what what we need to sort of understand is this question of who are the people of God, because that's what really frames the question in Galatians: who who are the people of God? What is it? Re- what is required to become the people of God? And so this is the question that goes back to Abraham. Abraham, as we know, was the father of the Jewish people. And so the question is always asked amongst the Jewish people, are you descended from Abraham? Because the promise came to Abraham that his descendants would be the people of God. So so to be the people of God means that you must be descended from Abraham. Now, that can be achieved one of two ways. The first one, obvious way, is that you're part of the ethnic people of Abraham. And so this means that you come from one of the original 12 tribes of of him. Now, for Paul, we know that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. We talked about this last week. And that's significant because if you you consider uh, when all the Jewish people went into exile, so going back to your Old Testament histories, there's the 10 northern tribes that went into exile and they were scattered. They, they never returned. And so effectively they were lost. Those 10 tribes were really just sort of wiped off the face of the earth. We, we don't really know what happened to them 
afterwards. But the two tribes in the south, in the nation of Judah, they went into exile as well, but they stuck together. They actually came back uh, to Jerusalem. And, and even when they went into exile into Babylon, so if you remember, the northern tribes went into, um, went into, an Assyria, into Assyria as their, for their exile, but for the Jewish people in the south, they went into Babylon. And the difference was in Babylon, they stuck together. So they were taken over as a big group and they were allowed to stick together. Whereas in Assyria, when they went into exile, the Assyrians intentionally scattered them. They intentionally broke them up into smaller groups and scattered them throughout their empire so as to intermix them with um, all of the local populations. And so for that reason, they were lost within a generation. Whereas in Babylon, because they were able to stay together in Babylon, they were able to stay, remain uh, ethnically pure, I guess is what you might say. And so what that means is that the two tribes, the, specifically the tribe of Benjamin and then the tribe of Judah, uh, were able to maintain their ethnic identity. Now, that becomes significant when you consider when Paul says, particularly to the Philippians, that I am from the tribe of Benjamin, that's a very specific statement that he's making in that he is ethnically Jewish. He, he can trace his ancestry back to Abraham. And, and even his name, Saul, as we said last week, came from the name of the first king of Israel, which was King Saul, who came from the tribe of Benjamin. So that's a really important designation that he has. He's ethnically Jewish in the same way that it's said of Jesus that he was from the tribe of Judah. That's important because Judah was the other tribe in the southern kingdom that remained ethnically pure. So to be from Benjamin or to be from Judah is to say that we are ethnically Jewish. We are directly descendant from Abraham. We can trace our ancestry back to him. So that's very important. That's what I ultimately makes you the people of God, that you're ethnically Jewish. Um, but then there was also the other customs that come along with that, and so specifically circumcision. And again, Paul says of himself that I was circumcised in the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. So these are very, very important. And then he also says of himself, as to the laws of, of our people, he said, I'm flawless, I'm perfect. I've, I, I, everything I did was absolutely in accordance with the laws of Israel. So these are essential um, characteristics. These are the things that absolutely make you the people of God. So to everyone who was born in uh, ethnically as Jewish, you've already got that distinct advantage of, of being Jewish. So as the history rolls on, as we come into the first century, into the New Testament era, the idea of Judaism was literally to live like a Jew. It was to become Jewish or to be Jewish. So to be the people of God has with it primarily an ethnic connotation. It's you were born into the family. And as a confirmation of that, the laws um, and, and the circumcision were the way to keep you into that. It's we, We've got to get this idea out of our head that Jewish people were trying to be saved through their, their obedience to the law. They never had a – and their, their understanding of salvation was obviously – quite different to our Christian understanding of that, their idea was that we are the people of God, firstly, by virtue of being born into it. We are the people of God. We are part of the, his, his covenant just by virtue of that alone. And so the idea of keeping the laws and keeping the, the customs isn't to earn that place in the people of God, it's to maintain that place. You were you came into the people of God by virtue of being born into it. Now it's up to you to keep it. So this is what all of these things are about. So Judaism then is that custom. It's you are already the people of God. And so now through these Judaistic practices, you maintain your place there. So that as well doesn't change. That's circumcision. That's uh, uh, keep keeping the laws, keeping kosher, keeping Sabbath. These things are the absolute essentials of what it means to the pe to be the people of God. So this is the question. This is the this is all very easy if you are um, um, ethnically Jewish. It becomes a problem when you're a Gentile. I'm going to come to that in just a moment. So Judaism or being Jewish is first and foremost an ethnic situation. Um, 
then after that, it's a matter of keeping the customs. Now, that's really easy if you're living in a place like Jerusalem. If you're living in Judea or if you're living in Galilee, it's much, much easier to keep the customs um, and to be Jewish because you're living in Jewish cities. You're living in a place surrounded by Jewish people. You don't find a lot of Gentiles in those places. So it's very, very easy to maintain those customs when you're in a place that is devoted to those practices. It's a much different situation when you're living in a Greek city or in a Gentile city, like Paul was in a place like Tarsus or you know, in Rome or in Corinth or wherever you might find yourself. You're now in the minority. You're, um, you are the, a, a subset of the many different cults and religions and various things that are happening in those cities. And so in those situations, you've got to do things a little bit differently. You're still probably ethnically Jewish. You're still part of the people of God in the same way that somebody living in Jerusalem is. But the way that you maintain your uh, the customs, the way you maintain that place in the people of God is going to look a bit different. The first um, important thing you have to do is to stay, stay within your Jewish community. So what will happen in a place like Tarsus is that there'll be a Jewish population, but they'll all be together in the same location. They'll all be living together within the same area. Um, and so the idea of that is to stay within your tribe, literally to stay within your people. And that in doing that, you maintain the community, you maintain your place within the ethnic people of, of the Jews. And so to sort of help foster and to sustain the customs you need places like synagogues you need these meeting places literally synagogue means a meeting place you need a place where you can go to practice your customs you can uh, you know, a synagogue will variously function as um, as a place to go on sabbath to hear torah being read out but then through the week it could be used as a courthouse it could be used as a place for school it can be used for festivals for anything that's related to the jewish customs that's all going to happen in the synagogue it's a bit like uh, a t uh, maybe a sort of a cross between a town hall and just a local community hall where it can, on a Sunday morning, it can be a church, and on the, the night before, it could be a wedding. In fact, I remember when we planted our church, we were in the local uh, community hall, and the very, very first Sunday we planted this church, we got there on Sunday morning, and there'd been a wedding there the night before, and they hadn't cleaned up. So we had to spend the first couple of hours getting ready for church, cleaning up just more wine bottles than I've ever seen in my life, and just an absolute disgusting mess of a thing. Anyway, um, so imagine a place like that. That's kind of what the synagogue is um, and more importantly than that it's not just about meeting with your jewish compatriots and maintaining the customs <clears throat> it's also abstaining from what's going on in the city and especially abstaining from the festivals so festivals where you're going to worship the pagan gods of the city you're not going to have any part of that idolatry is absolutely forbidden so you will never ever attend those festivals now, we've talked about this before. That's a challenge for anybody to, um, to withdraw from the festivals. It becomes a problem because to not worship the gods of the city is effectively an act of treason. You're bringing on you and the city the wrath of that god by not honoring them appropriately. The Jews, however, have an exception from that, an exemption from that. They don't need to go and worship at these festivals because everybody understands the Jews have been here for a long time. They've never worshipped the gods before. It's never been a problem. And so they always get that exemption from going to these festivals. And so the Jews really just keep to themselves. They're really just sort of their own little subset within the community. Uh, and that's the way that they maintain their uh, their uniqueness. Now, that does attract Gentiles. I think we've talked about this before, but this, this attracts Gentiles. One of the attractions of Judaism to a Gentile was that First, they've only got one God. And secondly, this God is moral. This God is very, very different to the gods that they're used to. And so that becomes a really appealing thing. So some Gentiles will come into Judaism and go through the process, become circumcised um, go and, and, and observe all the customs. But they'll never have that unique identity of being from the people of God, being directly from Abraham. But other, in all other ways, they'll be fully the people of God having gone through all of those rituals, having gone through um, 
the circumcision primarily, but then doing everything else that's required of the Jewish people. So this brings us to the situation of Christianity, because what you get in the early days of Christianity are Gentiles now coming into the fold. Now, you've got um, this new movement that is claiming to be the true representation of the people of God. They're claiming to be the true Judaism. And so they're carrying forward this custom of creating the people of God, creating communities that represent what it means to be Yahweh's people. Now, for the Jewish people, that's easy. They're already circumcised, already all of these things. And so they have this default thinking that we've always, to be the people of God, this is how it's always looked. Primarily, we've needed to be circumcised. We need to do the customs. And so for a Jewish person becoming a Christian, all of those things are fine. They don't disqualify you in any way from becoming a Christian. You, you carry on as, as you always do. The question is now when the Gentiles come in, do they need to go through the same customs? Do they need to go through the same rituals that we have to be the people of God? Because as far as Jewish Christians are concerned, or some Jewish Christians, that hasn't changed. Those requirements haven't gone away just because Christ has come along. Christ has come to fulfill the law, but we still need to observe the law in the same way. So this becomes the primary question now within these new Christian communities, which is Gentiles are coming in, we can't stop that, but do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? So this is the first big theological debate that has to be overcome in order to be able to really move forward and move forward in some sense of unity as, as this new church, as this new people of God. So it's into this debate that Paul enters. And for Paul, remember if we talked last week that Paul spent a long time in radio silence, you know, for about 17 years, Paul eventually basically just disappeared off the face of the earth, at least as far as where the center of the, the action was. Luke's focus in Acts was away from where Paul was. And so Paul was just sort of off in Arabia for a couple of years and then seems to be back in Tarsus for some time and maybe Antioch. And we just don't know what he was doing. But at least one of the things that he must have been doing was trying to work out what do we do with this question? What happens to Gentiles now? What does this look like as this message is going to go out into the world? And so for Paul, he seems to have come out of this time of exile with a very clear answer to the problem, with a clear, at least in his mind, a very clear solution to that. And it's a significant change to what he was, because the last time we'd heard from him, he was killing Christians. He was murdering them for um, believing that Jesus was the Messiah and believing these beliefs. Uh, and yet now he's not only come to fully embrace them, but he's radically changed his own views. We've gone from um, a, a legalistic Pharisee who was absolutely devoted to these customs to a guy saying to the Philippians, hey, all these things that used to give me the entirety of my identity, I now consider them to be dung. They're, they're, they're now just rubbish as far as I'm concerned when it comes to being the people of God. So this is a massive change in his life. So there's things that he keeps about the law, but there's other things too that need to be foster, need to be jettisoned. And the, now the, the reason for this, we have to keep in mind that there was no New Testament. Uh, there was no the Bible was our Old Testament. And so this was Scripture. And this is the first primary point of Paul's belief is that Scripture as they had it was still central. That was still the revelation of God and, and remains the revelation of God. And so the question about Scripture is that this is Scripture. Absolutely, it is 100%. But what do we do with it now in this new situation now post-Jesus? The Messiah has come and fulfilled the requirements of the law. What does that mean for us? How do we live these things out? And are, is it all still applicable? Well, in some cases, absolutely it was. So where uh, it teaches about sexual immorality or idolatry, that doesn't change. God's requirements for holiness are still 100% in effect. So that doesn't go away. What God requires of his people going back to Adam and Eve, has not changed one iota. So that, that doesn't change at all. The difference now is that through the Spirit, we have actually within us the power to, to fulfill these moral requirements, these ethical requirements of the law. Now through Christ, 
we can actually achieve those things that prior to him were impossible for us to do. And as we see later on in, in the letter to the Galatians, we realize that the point of the law was never to give us an instead of instructions to say, do these things or else, you know, do these things and be holy or else. It's to actually point out why we're wrong, why it is that we actually need God in the first place. So that never changes. That That's absolutely still fixed in Paul's mind. And we see that coming through in all of his letters. These same ethical requirements still come through. However... What he does set aside are many of the customs that used to be the way that you are the people of God. Well, the how you become the people of God now has completely changed. So things like all of the dietary laws that Jews will faithfully uphold as the people of God, all of that goes away now. And so for a Gentile who does eat you know, pork and does eat food that isn't kosher, that doesn't change. You keep eating the things that you're eating because it's not. It's no longer about food. That's not what makes you the people of God anymore. And so this is now. This is a really important point because what it means now is that Jews can now eat with Gentiles. Now we'll talk about this later on, but this is the really central point: is that when you eat with somebody, you're saying we're part of the same community. Now a Jew can never ever eat with a Gentile because Gentiles don't eat kosher food; they they their food they eat is unclean, and so a Jew just can't be at the same table as a Gentile, and so that will always keep those two communities apart. You can't if you can't eat with somebody, you can't be part of their world. Now. By removing these dietary laws, it means that you can all sit down at the same table and actually be in community together. So that's an important distinction that has now been jettisoned that enables Paul to, to even start these communities in the first place. The other important one is that circumcision is no longer necessary to, for the people of God. Now, it's not to say that you it's wrong to circumcise Kids, I mean, Jewish kids in his time will still be circumcised because that's just the Jewish custom. But it's only because of you being Jewish and that being part of your heritage. Carry on, keep doing that. That's fine. That, that you, you don't have to stop doing that. The difference is you can no longer insist that a, a new convert, a person coming into the people of God must go through that, particularly for adult males. You don't need to go through that process anymore because being the people of God is no longer about removing that piece of skin. It's about possession of the spirit. This is the important distinction. And, and Paul sort of talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3. It's no longer about um, circumcising a, a piece of physical flesh, but rather it's removal of the, fle the, the, the flesh of the heart. It's a circ full circumcision of the heart. And so it's kind of a disgusting analogy, but the point is clear. It's no longer about what you do to your physical body, but rather it's about what you do to your full being. That's what makes you part of the people of God now. So that's a really, really important distinction that Paul makes. And this is what gets him into so many debates with his fellow Jews. This is what the whole argument about Romans is that we're going to come to later on is over this very question. And so what Paul does then is he sees himself as being a representative of what is the true Judaism. The Judaism is always about the idea of being Jewish, but being Jewish in the sense of being the people of God. So Paul doesn't see himself creating a new religion. He doesn't come up with the idea of Christianity that's a slanderous term that gets thrown at the Christians later on. Paul sees himself as a, the, the, the embodiment of the true Judaism now being fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. So whatever is, whatever, uh, is represented around him is the true people of God. They are, that is the true Judaism. Now, initially, he wants that to work within the synagogue because he wants the people in the synagogue to re recognize now that Jesus is the Messiah and that this is the way to fully become the people of God. Now, as we see in time and time again, that very quickly becomes irreconcilable. It just doesn't work in the synagogue. One, because the people in that community just can't accept the message. It's just, it's, it's blasphemous to them. Paul is an apostate as far as the Orthodox Jewish community is concerned. But it becomes impossible as well because what Paul wants to do is to incorporate Gentiles into the synagogue community. And that would be all good and well so long as they get circumcised and do all of the things required of Jewish people. Apart from that, you could never sit with a Gentile. So it's, not, it's just simply not going to work. It becomes 
very quickly, very, very obvious, very quickly that if, Paul, if Paul's going to start these new communities, he has to do them somewhere else. And so this is why we find Paul moving his communities into these house groups. Um, and that's, that's a whole other story for another day. So Paul then is a representative of what he sees to be as the true Judaism. <clears throat> um, and this is what is going to be the cause of the first conflicts that he has with his fellow Jews, but is really what is at conflict between this Christian community and the Orthodox Jewish community of the time. So one of the interesting things that we, we, we get from the book of Galatians or the letter to the Galatians is an account of Paul's early ministry. Uh, well, specifically what happened when he came out of his, his exile, his time in silence. Um, we, we, so I'll, I'll read the whole passage, so bear with me as I read sort of a big chunk of scripture here. Um, but this particular account is really Paul emerging from that 17 years of being away and sort of having come to terms with his message. And what it indicates is that he must have been preaching this message in various locations, we don't know where, but he'd been testing this message out and seeing that it had been successful. And so he's a, he's been called now to go to this missionary field. He's been called, he's been pulled out by Barnabas to uh, to go out and preach to the Gentiles. But before he goes out, he goes down to Jerusalem and just checks in with the apostles, not necessarily to ask their permission, but just to, you know, I guess just to make sure that his message is in alignment with, with what's going on in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem still being the center of the action. Jerusalem is kind of the, the Rome for the Catholic Church. Um, so that's where the, the, the main authorities, the, the 12 apostles, are to be found. So Paul just checks in with them just to say, hey, um, you know, sorry for killing everybody all those years ago, but I'm, I'm good now. We're, you know, we're about to launch out into this mission. Um, and just to, again, to check in with them, make sure that uh, everything is in alignment. So he tells this story and we'll and explain a little bit later on why he, he feels the, ne- the need to tell this to the Galatians in the first place. But we'll come to that. So Galatians 2.1, it says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took along Titus, uh, took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach amongst the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in other words, what's happened is that Paul's gone to Jerusalem and already in Jerusalem you have this divide emerging. You have um, maybe even amongst the 12 as to what needs to happen to the Gentiles. Do they need to be circumcised or not? And there's clearly a group of hardliners who are saying absolutely they do. And what these guys seem to have been doing is influencing this council to say that, um, no, Paul's wrong. He needs to ensure that they be, they be circumcised. As what Paul's done is brought along Titus, who is a Greek, who's uncircumcised, but is a Christian, clearly, clearly the people of God, and saying, look at this guy. This is exhibit A of an uncircumcised Gentile who is nevertheless part of the people of God. So if if we have to be circumcised, then he has to be circumcised, and that's never going to happen. Nevertheless, he will remain the people of God. And so if it's true for Titus, then it's true for all of the other Gentiles that I've preached to and that I will preach to, they don't need to be circumcised. So the debate is already emerging very early on in Paul's ministry. So he goes on, as for those who were held in high esteem... Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now, again, we'll come back to that point later on. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. In other words, here's the division of ministry. Paul goes to the Greeks. Peter goes to the the Jews. Pretty straightforward. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. 
they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So in other words, what Paul's saying here is very, very early on, he was appointed by the Twelve to be the premier apostles of the Gentiles, whilst Peter was the apostle to the Jews. So that's the clear division of labor that's been established, and we saw why Paul was chosen last week. Importantly, what Paul's stressing here is that he was appointed by the Twelve. He was at least, not even that they appointed him, but they recognized the calling on Paul's life. Paul's very... um, it's important for him to stress this here that God had was the one who called him. God was the one who'd already um, decided that about him. It was only that the twelve were just going, "Yep, absolutely, that God is has definitely called you to do that," and they were just simply affirming that and giving them the, the right hand of fellowship, but literally to you know shake their hand and say, "All right, yep, uh, what you're doing is fine. Carry on, um, and you know God go with you," sort of thing. They didn't actually do anything for him. They didn't say to Paul, oh, we really need you to do this work. We feel like you've got the right credentials. No, they were just recognizing, yeah, God's doing something here and when we, we, we would be stupid to stand in the way. So that's as much as this meeting is really affirmed in terms of Paul's ministry. But the important point that Paul's trying to stress here is that even when he went down to see the Twelve, they recognized in Titus that these Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. It was just this, again, this group of hardliners who were stressing differently. So that's Paul's starting point, and that's where we start to move towards now the story of Galatians. Now, this is really interesting because what happens next, um, well, well, we'll read the story. So the story goes on in verse 11. It says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So what's happened here is that Paul's been to Jerusalem. He's seen Peter and the others. And they've all said, yep, your circumcision-free gospel is fine. I mean, we're not telling you that you need to preach that way. That's clearly a conviction you have with God. And so we're not going to stand in the way of that. And so by doing that, they've affirmed his message. They've endorsed it wholeheartedly. Sometime after that, Peter has come to Antioch to visit Paul. So Paul's returned with Barnabas back to Antioch. Now, Antioch was becoming the new center of the faith. If you look at a map, um, Antioch is is the north of what is effectively sort of Judea and Galilee. So if you that sort of strip of land that is Israel, the very northern point of that is where we find Antioch. And so it's sort of the... It's sort of a bridgehead between the Jewish world and the Gentile world. Uh, it's got a large Jewish population, but also a sort of a Greek population as well. And that's where we see Greeks first becoming Christians in that city. Um, so what what it sort of acts like is a bit of a, a sort of a, an exit point from the Jewish world into the Greek world. And it's not far from there that we get up to Tarsus. So again, it's probably easier if you, if you look at it on a map just to get a sense of where we find ourselves. But this is where Paul begins his operations. Paul doesn't do any work out of Jerusalem. That work has been done because Peter's down there doing the work to the Jewish world. Paul's going to go into the Greek world, and so his starting point needs to be where there's still a solid Christian Jewish population, but where it's a close in closer proximity to the Greek world. So Antioch kind of becomes the new center of Christianity, particularly as the Gentile population of the Christian church um, becomes more prominent. So he returns back there and he goes back there with Barnabas. And so Peter, having had this meeting, he's, he's sent out, maybe sent out or he just decides to go himself, heads up to Antioch just to see what's going on. Um, there's all of this action taking place. Uh, they've already sent Barnabas previously there to sort of go and see what's happening with these Greeks becoming Christians. So Peter himself, as effectively the head, I mean, James is the head of the church, but Peter's pretty much up there with John as the as one of the pillars. He um, He goes up to visit and see what's going on. Now, Paul says here that 
when Peter first arrived, even Peter had bought into this circumcision-free gospel, specifically in that he was happy to eat with Gentiles. Now, again, eating is very important. Who you eat with says everything about who you are. Your who you sit down at the table with is your community. So a Jew can never sit down with an uncircumcised Gentile. It's just absolutely abhorrent to a Jewish person. That will never, never happen. So for Peter to be sitting down with Gentiles is pretty significant, and especially when you consider that these Gentiles are eating food that isn't kosher. They're eating pork and and these other things. So that's a big deal. That's a big change for, for Peter that he's able to now do that, that he's come a long way even in his own sort of cultural thinking towards this issue. So that's all wonderful. Paul's like, hey, this is great. Peter's here and he's eating with us and these Gentiles are eating as well. But then he says something changed when a group, these hardliners that we met back a moment ago seem to have followed Peter themselves to come along and see what's going on themselves. Now, these men came from James. It says, did James send them? We don't know. Did they, did they, they happen to have come? They were clearly Christians. They were Jewish Christians, and they're probably part of that Jerusalem church. So whatever connection they had, we don't know. It's only speculation. The point is, when they got there, they were still bringing this message that to be the people of God, you have to be circumcised. You have to do all of the things that we've always done as Jewish people. And so when Peter saw that, he started to pull back from eating with the Gentiles. And so you imagine this circumstance where, you know, they're getting together every every week and they're saying to Peter, hey, you know, you're coming to dinner this week? He's, oh, no, look, sorry, I can't do it this week. Pretty busy. Uh, maybe take a rain check. Maybe come the week after and the week next week rolls around. Hey, Peter, are you coming to dinner tonight? Nah, no, nah, look, sorry, guys, can't do it. Something else has come up. And he's starting to back away. He's starting to refuse to eat with these Gentiles who a couple of weeks ago he was very happily eating with. Now, this is really significant because what Peter's saying to these Gentiles is that for you to be the people of God, you have to be circumcised. Uh, If you were the people of God, I would happily eat with you. But because I'm not eating with you, what I'm saying is that I'm not part of your community. Or importantly, you're not part of my community. And the only way that will change, again, saying this without saying it, the only way that's going to change is that you go through the circumcision, go through the processes in order to be the people of God. And so Paul calls him out on it. And again, we'll see why later on, but Paul calls him out on this and he says, you hypocrite. What the hell is going on? How dare you? One minute you're happy to eat with the Gentiles. Now you're saying that they need to be circumcised, you know, through your actions. This is a joke. Who do you think you are? And so, so Paul calls him out on this, on this absolute hypocrisy and not just Peter's hypocrisy, but the effect that it's having on the other Jewish teachers like Barnabas, who are all sort of going, oh yeah, yeah, we better, you know, we better toe the line for these, whoever these Jewish teachers are. So Paul's kind of fighting this battle alone. And the point he's making to the Galatians is that my conviction about this has been solid and I never changed one iota from the day that I realized this until today. This hasn't changed. Others are going to waver on the issue. I'm absolutely fixed on this issue. And again, we'll see why this is the case later on. All right, so to some point after that encounter that Paul and Barnabas set out on what becomes their first missionary journey. Now, this takes place maybe about the year 48, so about in about 12 months it seems to happen. So somewhere sort of around the 48 to 49 mark. And we pick up the story. Well, this actually begins in Acts 13, but we'll pick it up in, in chapter 14. Again, we'll just read a bit of scripture and just bear with me. So 14 verse 1, it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided, so some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to Lyconian, cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So this becomes the standard story then of Paul's ministry. He goes to a synagogue and very quickly he's declared to be an apostate and then he's kicked out. Um, when this, this is 
kind of a regular occurrence to the point where when Paul says to the Corinthians that five times he's received from the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one, um, this was the synagogue punishment for being an apostate. So on five different occasions, it's got to the point where they've actually flogged him as a punishment for this preaching that he's been doing. So it says here that the Jews um, very quickly drove him out of the synagogue. And it even says that some Greeks were coming after him as well. Now, were they Greeks that are attached to the synagogue, i.e. Greeks who have become followers of or converts to Judaism, or are they just Greeks from within the city's population who are challenged by Paul's preaching to say that you don't worship the local gods, which is just as significant a threat. Um, whatever the case was, Paul's making enemies left, right, and center. And so he, he's kicked out of the synagogue. Now, it's interesting that he goes to the synagogue in the first place because you say to yourself, well, if Paul's an apostate, then why is, why is he even welcome there, let alone to preach? But the fact is we need to remember, um, Paul never stopped being a Pharisee. Paul was a very famous Pharisee, in fact. Um, there's one, Gordon Fee actually makes the point that if Paul didn't become a Christian, we'd still have heard about him, but rather as a Jewish teacher, as a Pharisee. He would have been that influential and that famous. Whichever, whatever path he went down, he just would have been so influential that he would have, we would have heard about him one way or the other. Anyway, that's all sort of speculation. But the point was that when Paul goes to a city, he's got a welcome invitation to the synagogue because by virtue of being a Pharisee, he gets to preach. When we see Jesus going into the synagogue and they say, hey, you're, you're clearly a teacher, come up here and preach. We don't quite know who you are, but, you know, here's the pulpit, away you go. So Paul gets that opportunity by virtue of being the Pharisee that he was, which is, again, taking together all of these experiences that he's got, that he's had um, in that 40-odd years of preparation, all of it is useful. God draws on all of it in every circumstance. And in this case, it enables him to preach directly into the synagogue. But then, as always, he faces opposition from that community. And so uh, in Acts 13, but also just by default here, he just goes and preaches to the Gentiles. And what that looks like then is he goes and preaches in house churches. He starts small house communities. Now, we'll, we'll do another podcast on that another day, why Paul met in houses, only to say that he was no longer welcome in the synagogue and really there was nowhere else to meet. Um, he couldn't go to the temples because he wouldn't be seen dead in one of those places. What's left? Well, it's, it's somebody's house. And so this is where he moves the community over there. And what we see very early on, particularly in Galatia, is that we've got a community mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And this becomes the new story. Jews and Gentiles are mixing together in these Christian communities. Now, within a few decades, it becomes primarily Gentile. But in the early days, it's sort of Jews taken from the synagogue, Gentiles brought in from, from everywhere, and they're creating these new Christian communities. This is what Paul is effectively establishing as what he understands to be the true Judaism, the, the true people of God. So now we finish the story at the end of chapter 14. So verse 26 says, From Italia they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed a long time there with the disciples. So he's had a successful time in the region of Galatia. Some new communities have been started and it's all been very successful. There's, there's some really new and exciting things that have been happening. Now, there's a whole lot of debate over when Galatians was actually written. Um, the traditional view is that it was actually written here. So on, upon Paul's return to Antioch for all of the problems that we're about to see unfold, it's about this time that Galatians gets written, which would make it Paul's earliest letter. Now, some have suggested that it might have been written later on from Corinth or maybe even after that during Paul's later missionary journeys. Um, so there's, there's arguments to be made for that as well. But the traditional view is it is written here, which would actually make it Paul's first letter, or at least the first that we have. Um, so there's a debate. So there's a bit of a competition now between whether it's Galatians or whether it's First Thessalonians that being Paul's letters. Um, we'll go with the traditional view uh, because really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter when it was written. The fact is, it was written. We have it, and we can. We, you know, that's that's as much as we need to know. Um, but you know, for, for for the purposes of this, at least this episode, we'll just work on the assumption that it was written at this stage. So the question then is why? Why was it written? in the first place. 
Well, what seems to have happened is that you've got some Jewish teachers who have come into the to the church in Galatia who are saying to these Gentiles, look, Paul hasn't told you the whole message. You do, in fact, need to be circumcised to be the people of God. Now, who these teachers are, where, where they've come from, again, we just don't know. Paul doesn't tell us that. He doesn't need to give us that detail because the, the Galatians know exactly who he's talking about when he writes to them. He doesn't need to explain who they are. So there's two options. One, they were teachers who've come from Antioch, so they've heard these reports and then they've gone out and they've gone back over to Galatia and they've said, hey, we heard what Paul's preached to you, uh, you know, here's the full story. Or there were lo- local Jewish leaders, people from within Galatia who've seen what, what is happening, who are um, concerned about what's going on in this community and so they're trying to address the issue. So those are the two options that we have. And again, we don't know, we will never be sure, and really it doesn't matter so much where they came from. The fact is they were there and they they were trying to undermine the work that Paul has just done in Galatia. So there were a number of concerns that these guys had. And again, there's probably a few going on. Now, the thing to remember when we read Paul's letters is that Paul doesn't explain to us the circumstances. Again, he doesn't need to because they know the circumstances. Paul is just responding immediately to them. Um, The expression that's used to describe this, we talk about mirror reading. We're trying to understand the circumstances like a mirror. We're trying to understand them from the reflection, which is the letter itself. It's a little bit like if you're listening to somebody on the phone and you imagine you're driving in the car with somebody and they're talking on the phone. Uh, actually, a bad example because you don't do that anymore. Um, imagine somebody's just talking on the phone and you're sort of overhearing them talking. Now, you can't hear the person on the other end. Um, all you can hear is the person sitting near you that's having the conversation. So they're talking, they're talking loudly and they're um, you know, answering questions or they're you know, responding to the situation. Now, again, you don't know who's on the other end, but you can start to piece together based on what's been said, based on the tone of voice, based on um, just what you might understand about what the person is talking about. Number one, who they're talking to, and then also what it is that they're talking about, what's been said on the other end. You can kind of piece piece the whole situation together, even though you've only got one side of the story. And so for Paul, that's what we're doing with his letters. We're trying to understand them from one side of the conversation. So we, again, we don't know exactly who these people are or what exactly their concerns were. Paul is just responding to the situation. And based on his response, we can start to piece together something of the story. So there's a couple of concerns that seem to be uh, emerging from this, from these teachers, whoever they were, wherever, wherever they were from, what we do know about them is they were insisting on circumcision. They were making insisting that the Gentiles in Galatia be circumcised. Um, so number one, there's probably they're probably horrified that the local Jewish community, this Jewish Christian community, are eating with uncircumcised Gentiles. That's primary problem number one, that they're, they're doing this. And the reason why this is a concern is because it's effectively an act of treason amongst the Jewish community. To do this thing is to undermine the very people of God, and the outcome of that would be to delay the day of judgment. The, Jew- the Jewish people are waiting for the day of judgment, and the only way that's going to occur is that we re- is that all of the God- people of God remain faithful. This is what Saul's concern was when he was trying to kill the Christians. These guys are a threat to the coming of the day of judgment, so we need to get rid of them. And so for the Jewish people, this is their primary concern. And the quickest way to undermine that is to take the people of God and mingle them in with unclean Gentiles. So this is a problem. This is a concern for us, and we need to mitigate this, not by necessarily stopping the Jewish people, the Jewish believers eating with Gentiles, but saying to the Gentiles, be circumcised, become Jewish. That way, when you do eat together, it's not going to bring about judgment. So, or it is going to bring about judgment in the way that God would return. So that's probably one concern. Uh, Another concern would be that Gentiles, these new Gentile believers are abstaining from the, the, the festivals, the, the pagan festivals. Now, we've talked all about this, but the idea that the Gentiles rejecting the gods of the city to come and worship Jesus is 
blasphemy to the Gentiles. So this is a problem. Now, the reason why the Jews, the Jews have an exemption from these practices, they don't have to go to these temples the way that the Gentiles do. And so everyone's fine with that. Now, what these Gentiles are doing is that they're going, they're saying, well, we're Christians, and so we are the people of God. We are like this Jewish community. So they're trying to stand under this umbrella of exemption that the Jewish people have. But the concern would be for the authorities, it's like, well, hang on, if you were Jewish, then why aren't you getting circumcised? Why aren't you doing the things that Jewish people do? You're doing something very different. So you're not really Jewish, but you're claiming to be Jewish. More importantly, you're not going to the festivals. And that's causing problems for us. And so from the Jewish point of view, certainly from the synagogue community, is this is causing a problem for the rest of the Jewish community. Even if you're, look, if you want to be Christian, that's fine, whatever. Um, but you, by you trying to pretend to be Jewish to get, get out of the festivals, that's making us look bad because we seem to be endorsing this behavior. We seem to be seen to be bringing Gentiles over and uh, rejecting the gods and all of the problems that come along with that. We can get in trouble now because of what the perception is about what it is that we seem to be doing. So that's maybe another thing that's standing behind their concerns. Um, and also there might be a concern that this having these uncircumcised Gentiles in the community is undermining the reputation of the church in Jerusalem. Remember, the church back in Jerusalem are in a really tenuous position. They're trying to um, be the people of God, worshipping Jesus as the Messiah in a context where Jesus absolutely is not the Messiah, that he's an apostate, and you guys are saying he's the Messiah. This is a real problem. You guys are heretics. Now, James was a good leader in that he was able to balance the two. He was able to keep the tension just to a point where it doesn't blow, spill over into persecution. He was able to keep the, the Christian community relatively stable within this very potentially hostile Jewish community. Now, that's hard enough as it is, but if word gets back to Jerusalem that these other Christian communities are just fully eating with uncircumcised Gentiles and doing all of the things that are abhorrent, that's going to reflect badly on James and it's going to cause problems for the church back in Jerusalem because they seem to be not endorsing it necessarily in Jerusalem but allowing it to happen in their communities out in the broader world. So all of these things taken together become a real problem and the solution is really clear just get circumcised, just become fully Jewish, and these problems go away. Now, there would be an overarching element to all of this in that these teachers would just be fully convinced that you need to be circumcised to be the people of God. So it's not just pragmatic uh, reasons that they're insisting on the circumcision. They're actually genuinely believe you need to be circumcised to be the people of God. You need to do all of the things that make you Jewish in order to be Christian. So you take all of this together, this would be very likely what is sort of at the core then of, uh, of the problem going on in, um, or at least what, why they're pressuring these Gentiles to do this. Now, in order to back this up, what they're saying to these Galatians is that Paul is not a true apostle. That's at the core of their argument. He hasn't told you the full gospel. He's just given you half the message. In fact, what he's given you is the gospel light or a diet version of the gospel, a sugar-free version. Now, what, what, what they're saying to the Galatians is that when Paul was in Jerusalem, he was explicitly told by the 12 that, you, that he needs to preach a circumcision gospel. What he's done is then gone out to you guys and actually just taken that little detail out. What he's tried to do is preach what we might call a seeker-sensitive version of the gospel, one that doesn't involve the painful process of circumcision. Look, hey, come in, be the people of God. Nah, don't worry about circumcision. That's not necessary anymore. You're just fine as you are. Come in. You don't need to change a thing. Just become Christians, become the people of God. And so what that's what their primary accusation is, that Paul went to Jerusalem 
And back in Jerusalem, and what these guys are claiming is that they're getting their authority from Jerusalem. Jerusalem has backed their message over Paul's. Paul gave them the message and also, sorry, Jerusalem gave them the message and also gave Paul the same message. They're going out as true representatives of Jerusalem as the head church, and they're saying to these Gentiles, you have to be circumcised. We're telling you the stuff that Paul didn't have the guts to tell you himself. So I'm sorry to say it, you have to go through this process. So they're undermining Paul. They're saying that he's not a true apostle, which is why the message that they bought into is not the full message. You have to now complete the message yourself. And the goal of this, the result of all of this, they're saying to these Gentiles, is that to do this, you must therefore, you will become the people of God. You will become the children of Abraham because Abraham was given circumcision. So therefore, to be the children of Abraham, you need to be circumcised yourself. That's what's going to make you the, of the children of Abraham, part of the promise, and therefore part of the people of God. And so then Galatians becomes a response to all of these accusations. So what I was saying before where Paul was retelling the story of when he was in Jerusalem, was telling it very um, very forcefully, was saying, no, I was never told that. And first of all, I never went to Jerusalem to learn my gospel. I, I had already formed my gospel prior to going there. All they did was rubber stamp it, but they were rubber stamping what God had what God had endorsed. So they had no choice but to rubber stamp it. it I, I didn't need their endorsement in the first place. So first and foremost, my gospel did not come from the church in Jerusalem, and they certainly did not tell me that I needed to preach circumcision. In fact, I was opposed to that from day one, and I took Titus along to prove the point. So Point number one, uh, absolutely, the Jerusalem didn't do anything for me. That was my message was already formed prior to that. So that's let's reject fake news number one. That's um, the Jerusalem that I, I'm I'm watering down the message from Jerusalem. And by the way, let me tell you about Peter. You know that guy that's so wonderful, Peter, who is um, you know he's he's you know the all of these wonderful things. Well, even Peter blew it. Even Peter was a hypocrite at times. So, and when he was, I wasn't afraid to call him out. I'm not afraid of the 12, right? They, they, I'm not trying to hide from them. No, when they were wrong, I very happily called them out on that matter. So does that sound like a person who's a people pleaser? I mean, that's what they're accusing me of, that I'm a people pleaser, that I'm coming to you guys and saying, oh, no, let me just give you a nice, friendly, unicorn version of the gospel. Does, does that sound like somebody who was a people pleaser? I'm, I'm ready to call out Peter on his own stuff. So absolutely not, I'm a people pleaser. In fact, the very start of the letter is Paul just ripping into them from from go, from day from the first words. You know, hey... <clears throat> Um, if anyone's going to preach a false gospel, if anyone's going to preach a gospel other than the one that I preached, they can go to hell, straight up anathema to them. They can go to hell. They're, again, does that sound like somebody who's trying to please people? No. If you believe another gospel other than what I preached, if you preach another gospel other than what I preached, you can literally go to hell. You, In fact, you will go to hell for that. So no, I'm not trying to be a people pleaser here. I'm just telling you the truth as I see it. So that's the first two chapters of Galatians. Basically, Paul is just ripping straight into them. I mean, he is angry when he writes this. There, he's not holding back. All right, there's there's nothing friendly about this letter. Paul is absolutely just out of his mind, crazy angry at the situation that's going on, and he wants them to know that how annoyed he is with the circumstance. And then from chapters 3 through to 5, he's answering this question of what does it mean to be the children of Abraham? You guys want to be the children of Abraham? Fantastic. Absolutely. And you are the children of Abraham, not by circumcision. In fact, to be circumcised will be to forfeit your faith because if you're going to come along and say, hey, Jesus saved me 90% of the way, but I've got to finish the job by circumcision, is to say that Jesus is not God at all. He's either fully your savior or he's not a savior at all. You, you can't have an, a middle ground. So if Jesus is fully your savior, then you are saved. If you need to be circumcised to finish the work that he couldn't finish, then he's not God at all. So which is it? Is he God or is he not God? And if he's not God, then there's nothing Christian about you in the slightest. None of it matters. So you have to just go and do the full circumcision process. But that's not Christianity. So you are the children of God already 
by virtue of possessing the spirit. In fact, um, it says to God, God said to Abraham, you know, well, Abraham believed God by faith. Abraham didn't become the people of God by circumcision. He became that by faith. And so he says to the Galatians, how did you become the people of God? Well, by faith. So then how are you different to Abraham? Abraham didn't become the people of God by circumcision. He became it by faith. So why do you think that you need to become the people of God by circumcision when you became the people of God through faith? It's all one and the same thing. So you are the children of Abraham by virtue of your faith. So that's his argument against this suggestion that they're not the people of God. And then finally, he answers the question of then how do we know? What is the mark then? If it used to be circumcision, the mark, that was the marker of being the people of God. Well, then what is the new marker of being the people of God? He says, well, simple. You have the spirit. How do you know you've got the spirit? Well, really, really simple. You live a different life. You demonstrate the characteristics of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, general self-control, all these things, these are the marks of what it means to be the people of God. It's not a physical mark anymore, but it's a transformation of your whole life. You have the spirit and you start to live a life that reflects that spirit. If you are doing those things, then truly you are the people of God. You are the children of Abraham and there's nothing anybody can do to change that and to be circumcised won't just be of no consequence. It will actually reverse all of those things because what you're saying is, Jesus, you're insufficient to do the job. I need to finish the work for you. So that's Galatians in a very, very small nutshell, but hopefully the story behind it will become a bit clearer. So my encouragement to you this week would be maybe go and read Galatians, uh, have a read of it again in light of all of this, and just see what it's saying to you. Remember what I said to you last week, that the best way to read these letters is to read them as one whole document, because that's what they are. Take all of this together and let me encourage you maybe just go and read Galatians and, and just see what it has to say to you. Anyway, that's up to you. Hopefully that's been helpful. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next week and we're going to get into the story of one and two Thessalonians, but otherwise have a great week and I'll see you then.